Welcome to the Senses of Cinema podcast for May 2019. My name is Mark Freeman and I'm one of the editors at Senses of Cinema. And with me today is my delightful co-host. Are you feeling delightful, Kirsten? Always feeling delightful. Excellent. The wonderful Kirsten Stevens. She's a writer. She's an academic. She's a programmer. She's superwoman. She's incredible. And in our rotating third chair this month is nobody yet. Um, we will be having a returning guest uh, coming in for our second segment. So look forward to that. A return of a familiar voice. On today's show, we're going to kick off with the TV show that everyone has been talking about this month, even if some of us have never watched an episode. Yeah, we can't let May go by without addressing the conclusion to Game of Thrones. The outcry, the excitement, the intense fan-led backlash. We'll discuss all of it. Then in segment two, we're going to be looking back at the career of Doris Day, who died recently at the age of 97. And to round out the main show, we'll be taking a look at the new Netflix drama slash comedy Dead to Me, where Linda Cardellini and Christina Applegate play brand new besties, although a dark secret one of the women holds threatens to overturn their friendship forever. We'll round out the show with our recommendations for May, and for our patrons, our bonus this week is a very special Khan report from Senses of Cinema's very own Michelle Carey. Okay, Kirsten, for the start, it's just you and I. Are we ready to get the show underway? Definitely. We are definitely ready to go. So, Game of Thrones. Now, not everybody watches Game of Thrones, but I think we can't get away from the fact that it's been a huge um, cultural moment, at least in terms of screen culture, so we had to address it. Um, It did premiere back in HBO back in April of 2011. Uh, It was a series based on the novels by George R.R. Martin, And by the time the series ended this month in May 2019, the series has gained an intensely loyal fan base, which in the final episodes proved to be both a blessing and a curse. Showrunners David Benioff and D.B. Weiss, or D&D as they came to be known, crafted a sometimes compelling, sometimes problematic conclusion to the multitude of stories that have made up the Westeros universe. The ultimate question of who would sit on the Iron Throne has been the central question, indeed the very game, of the entire series. So from here on in, if you don't know the end, this is spoiler territory. I'm figuring if you watch the show, you know the ending. If you didn't watch the show and you plan to, come back in about 15 minutes. But Kirsten, I have to ask the question, how do you feel... Spoilers at the ready. How do you feel about the choice who finally got to rule the seven, or is it now six, kingdoms on Game of Thrones? Uh, so many feelings about this season. <laughs> yep. Yep. Um, about who ends up on the throne, uh, I, I probably actually quite like it for the fact that it left me going, yep, I no longer care about this. Right. Um, which I think was actually a really great way for the show to end because I'm not missing it. I actually haven't gone back and rewatched the final episode because I just got to the end. I'm like, yeah, I no longer care. Yeah, it broke up with you. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that was a perfect way to put it. I mean, I, I understand, narratively, I understand everything that happens in the yes. final season. And um, I know there's been a lot of outcry about in particular, Daenerys's change yes. and people going, that's completely out of character. I disagree with that. I think everything that happens in season eight has been narratively justified and was, of course, that was what was going to happen and, of course, it makes sense. I just think it ultimately was a bit lazy and a bit 
rushed and it could have been done better and they could have done something to shake it up a bit. Yeah, I'm glad because we haven't discussed this before recording. So I'm glad that you're on the side of the thing with the Daenerys is not rushed. So certainly there's been the outcry that, oh my God, she's suddenly turned into this, you know, bad power hungry person. She's always been that since about episode six of season one. Um, And it's just been incremental over time. So I think that that her trajectory, I think, was really clear. I think one of the the ways to think about it is, I think if you put season seven and season season eight together, because seven was like seven episodes, wasn't it? Yeah. And eight was six. That's a 13-episode season. And I think in the context of those two together, that transformation that Daenerys goes under um, perhaps becomes a little more clear. So, you know, yeah, settle down on that. I, I think that I'm leaning more into feeling positively about the show um, in that final season. I do have a problem with the whole Iron Throne thing. I get the symmetry. The boy who falls out of the thing in episode one, you know, is on the throne and on the very end of the season. I get it, right? I, I understand the symmetry of it. I think I was really pissed about the setup for that decision. Yeah. Like, we've literally had eight seasons of, like, who's going to sit on the throne? Who's going to be the king? Who's going to be the queen? Is it this person? Is it that one? Who knows? And at the end, it's literally one character saying, who's got the best story? I picked the one who sat down the whole time and hasn't really done anything except for the last couple of episodes. Yeah. And, well, he, even there, I mean, he went through... There was such a good setup for um, Bran's story is becoming the Three-Eyed Raven and they put so much effort into it and then it just got inconvenient. Yes. Um, he disappeared <laughs> for like two seasons, yeah. didn't he, basically? Yeah. And he, he hasn't learned how to control that power. He can do nothing with it. Um, oh, he can fly like a raven, Kirsten. But, so that scene in the, <laughs> the Night King, the Battle of the Night King... Uh, he flies off. What on earth does he do? He he says to Theon, who's standing there trying to have a conversation before he's clearly going to die, and Bran's just there going, oh, sorry, I need to go off, be a flock of birds right yeah, now. Yeah, well, wouldn't you choose that? I mean, it was literally just him, like, flying around, like, hey, this looks cool. He gets the kind of panoramic overhead shot, like, well done, Bran. Um, you know, but it was all for a reason, which felt a little bit forced and clumsy for me. Well, this me. is it. Like... I, as I say, I overall narratively understand everything that happens in the final season, but, and this has been my complaint of a whole number of franchises recently, notably Endgame um, for the Avengers, which is because they assume that you have been following from the start, they do away with character development, they do away with plot development, they do away with all of the extra layer of storytelling yeah. that we took for granted in the earlier seasons and what made them so enjoyable. And instead they went, oh, yeah, we'll just pull this guy in because you all remember Bran. We don't need to do anything to set up the fact that he's going to become king. We don't need to do anything to complicate that. He just gets to sit there and go, yeah, why do you think I came to King's Landing? Yeah, because I always knew it was going to be me. I mean, I I also had, and I I don't want to kind of really get stuck into the the final season because mostly I'm pretty happy with it. Um, The first half of the season, I think, is far superior to the last three episodes. My problem with the the setup of Bran is that, you know, you have, you know, Tyrion Lannister, one of the central characters of the show, standing up and saying, well, you know who should run this? It should be the person with the biggest story. 
overlooking the woman he was forced to marry, um, Sansa, who has gone through an incredible trajectory. And and if you want to pick pick somebody who's got a story, it's her, if if not her sister Arya. Um, but Sansa's story is extraordinary. Like, how is it not? If we're basing it on story, I'm sorry, she wins. And the power that she displays in that meeting, she's by far the person in control in that yeah. meeting, and yet she doesn't get a look in. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, as I, I, overall, I'm not as devastated as a number of the fans are about the final season, but I do have some sort of key, key complaints, and one of them being the six episodes and the longer runtime. None of the episodes that had the 78 minutes runtime did I think deserved 78 minutes. You, you weren't on board for the, the attack on Winterfell, the, the long night? I actually think that episode would have worked that. so much better as two episodes. Right. If you think about what Game of Thrones used to do, you know, think about the Red Wedding and the fact that you have this devastating moment where... You, it does, it crushes main characters, it crushes an entire storyline. I felt that's what the Night King deserved because, right. you know, it, it was set up from the start as the major threat were, were the dead. Yep. Um, and for it to be over in one episode and quite an intense battle episode like that, I, I felt like they could have done more. Have it so that the first episode ends at the point where you see a major character die and someone more major than sure. actually did die. Yeah. Um, and have it at the point where maybe, you know, it's that face-off between Jon Snow and the, Night, and the King, Night King. And he starts to raise the dead and then you end the episode. How much would people be hanging yeah, out waiting to know for the next week? Yeah. And that was that level of storytelling that I felt kind of slipped because they could kind of do what they wanted. And so they did these big episodes, which if they'd used that time well, I think would have been great. But yeah. Um, I think they could have played out some of the tensions a bit more by actually sticking to a, an hour format. Okay. I mean, I, I actually really, and I know that that, um, that episode, the what is it, the third episode of the season, The Long Night, which is the battle uh, against Winterfell with the Night King and all of his you know, frozen zombies coming to, to take them all. Um, I, I actually really loved that episode a lot. I, I get what you're saying, that, that you could have easily have cut that in half, and I think that still would have worked. I loved that sense of me being just completely dumped in that m moment mm. for such an extended period of time. And it is one of the times where I think the the gotcha surprise uh, really worked so that the, you know, the, the victory that is uh, won is done in such a terrific, wonderful, surprising way. I literally, like, I'm such a nerd that I spent how long days afterwards just watching reaction videos to it uh, because you know it was such a a lesson in how people read images people screaming and then thinking hooray and then literally watching people's faces pass into she's gonna die no she's not that that sense of people grappling with the narrative information as it's just parceled out very very cleverly was extraordinary and I, mm. I got such pleasure out of that got to the end of that episode I was exhausted and I felt like I'd really been put through the ringer and I loved it um and so the the lead up to that and that episode I was really into but when it came to the battle for King's Landing which is obviously going to be the one that's going to decide who's on the throne I kind of I mean a lot of it was really pretty mm. um 
that I found that really flat. Like, this is the big battle. This is the question. Who's going to sit on the throne? And, you know. And that's where... I actually was thinking about this with the final episode, which is there, in the battle sequence, I think I watched um, the documentary about the making of the final season, um, The Last Watch, which is really quite interesting, fascinating, and helps to understand why it is over and it's probably not going to happen again because the production schedule on this final season is insane. They were producing multiple feature film. Yes. uh, Size productions on a TV schedule, which is insane to think about how many locations, how many um, production stuff went into making this. Um, But one of the things that uh, they were talking about um, in particular was the way in which the production of the um, Battle with the Night King, you were really in there, you were following, um, you know, it was rehearsed to the nth degree. Um, But there was only three scenes of dialogue in that entire episode. But it worked. Yeah. Um, You know, you weren't sitting there going, I'm sick of them fighting. You were still captivated. Um, But by the time you get to that final episode, there's really only one scene with any heart. So, yes, it's emotionally um, quite saturated that moment where Jon Snow stabs Danny, But there was really only one scene that I felt was connecting with the characters, which was the conversation between Tyrion and Jon Snow in the cell. Yes, that's true. I was, you know, that was sort of the, um, I guess, the best elements of the, the show kind of coming. And everything else was very formulaic. And now we have this scene for this plot development point. Yeah. And now we have this scene... And even the battle between Jamie and um, oh lord, the Euron, boy, it, it yeah. seemed unnecessary and just kind of uninteresting yeah. to me. Yeah, there there were. I think they made some really poor choices in terms of how they were going to choreograph some stuff. And and having that said, having said that, there were also some amazing choices that they made. So I sort of don't feel like I could say ah, it was all terrible mm. because there was enough that was amazing that left me feeling satisfied. Um, but I feel like I felt most satisfied after episode three. Uh, and at the end, like you, I'm like, oh, well, that's the end. Yeah. So yeah, you know. Which, you um, know, is somewhat genius if you think about it. Because, I suppose. Yeah. But, for for a franchise like this, there was never going to be a good way to end. No. But when you do have characters like Jamie Lannister or his sister, stroke wife, stroke mother of his children, um, Cersei, to have them be such central figures, and Cersei being this incredible, she's one of the best characters in that show for eight seasons. She's amazing. Lena Headey, holy moly, she's incredible. Um, to then get to the end and say, oh, what are we going to do with the, oh, these these two? Like, I don't know, why, why don't we drop a building on their head? I was like, well, you know, I wanted a big scene. Well, and it was like, it. oh, I think I love you, brother. Like, crash, damn. This is it. I think something, I mean, uh, possibly excluding um, the mountain and the hounds final scene, um, the deaths got far less spectacular. They did. Um, and when you think about the importance of some of these characters and the, the, they didn't kind of get that big death send-off. No, no, they didn't. They kind of earned it. Yeah. I wanted the big... Who's going to kill Cersei? Like, I need somebody to murder her. I need them to have a little bit of witty, tense dialogue before she gets killed. I, I want that payoff. And it was like, oh, I love you, Jamie. Like, you know, dead. Like, well, disappointing. Mm. I was a bit upset about that. Um, but how do we feel about the the fan reaction? Um, 
you know, it's kind of fascinating. Literally a petition like, please do the season, last season again. Yeah, which is not going to happen. No, it's not. There is no way that they can do that. And, you know, to all the fans out there who are feeling that way, don't worry, you're going to get more. This is not the end of Game of Thrones. They're going to be making the prequel. They're going to be making spin-offs. Yes. Because no franchise ever dies anymore. Um, I think, I mean, I come back to this point that I feel like you are never going to end this series and everyone be happy. No. And if anything, this is probably even better for HBO um, to have the, the fans having this reaction than for everyone to go, yeah, that was good. Yeah, yeah. Because then we wouldn't still be talking about it. We wouldn't be talking about that intense fan reaction. Yeah. And that is going to sustain interest and passion for a really long time. And, you know, what you're saying about that idea that nobody was going to be happy or few people were going to be happy, I mean, it is because, and this is, you know, must be hard for people who, who haven't jumped into the world but it is really immersive it is a really exciting show it is the sort of show that most people look at from a distance and say rubbish not interested don't care dragons piss off not interested um but once you get into it it actually is really involving and is really exciting you know i think ultimately everybody had their own ending in their head and we were all committed to the ending that Mm. we wanted and it sort of feels like the way that they concluded it was actually more about um, D&D sort of doing the gotcha. Like, ha, you weren't expecting that, were you? You didn't think that was going to happen. So rather than thinking about character or plot or narrative, it tended to be more about trying to to impress a surprise upon an audience. And those surprises didn't always make sense so that everybody's mapped out how they think should happen. And it's like, but that's dumb. (laughs) Well, I mean, I think you've hit on the head right there in terms of... There's a petition to remake it, but there's not one version of remaking it that everyone wants. Yeah. Everyone's come together to yeah. sign this petition, but they're not going, yeah, it should have been John, or it should have been Daenerys, or it yeah. should have been Tyrion, or something yeah, like anything. that. Yeah. Um, they're all saying all their little quibbles, all of their little concerns, um, and it's not like there's one version that everyone agrees would have been better. Um, so they could spend another however many million they put into this season remaking it and probably have the same petition at the end, regardless of what they do. Yes. And, you know, it's not, there's never going to be the perfect ending. You sort of have to accept the fact that sometimes fandom just becomes like you have your, this is fan service. Like you need to give me what I want. And, you know, you there are millions and millions of people who want a certain ending. You're not, you're not going to win. Sorry. Which is, you know, and I guess the end result is that we all got to the end and went, okay, like yeah. not exactly what I wanted. I'll kind of take it. But in terms of in terms of the fandom, I mean, I actually, I think this ending will give them impetus. There will be so much fan fiction. Um, if George R. Martin ever actually finishes the book series, there'll be such hype around that. Um, it'll produce creativity. It'll of produce course. its own spin-offs, its own work, which I think, you know, That'll create the show's legacy. Aria on a boat heading off to find out what else is out there in the world. I want, I want an Aria spin-off. We need an Aria <laughs> spin-off. We do. Like yep. Aria, kind of the dread pirate Aria. She oh, can just that like, would be amazing. She can just go off and change faces and stuff. That would be really cool. So anyway, that's Game of Thrones. Um, if you want to leave a message to us about Game of Thrones on our episode thread on Facebook, you can do so. Tell us whether we read it wrong and 
and yell at us if you think we're completely missing the mark. Um, but we'd love to hear your feedback. So head to facebook.com slash cinema and leave a comment there. This month, we again paid tribute to a much-beloved cinema icon who has passed away in recent weeks. Doris Day, born Doris May Ann Kebelhoff in Cincinnati, Ohio in 1922, passed away at the impressive age of 97 on Monday 13th May 2019. Day, whose career spanned roles as a big band singer, a television sitcom queen and, more recently, animal rights campaigner, uh, was best known as a star of the silver screen through the Hollywood heyday of the 1950s and 1960s. She starred in close to 40 films across her two decades on the big screen, launching with Romance on the High Seas in 1948 and exiting with Six You Get Egg Roll in 1968 to take a place on the small screen with The Doris Day Show. They built her reputation initially as the star of a series of Warner Brother musicals through the late 40s and 50s, in particular including Calamity Jane in 1953, before taking on more mature roles in a series of sex comedies at Universal, often and perhaps most successfully starring opposite her good friend Rock Hudson. As many of Day's obituaries have noted, this change saw the star move from America's Girl Next Door to The Woman Next Door, Yet Day's quality lies far deeper than her appeal as another attractive Hollywood blonde. The combination of her rendition of Secret Love in Calamity Jane and her regular and close work with Hudson in Pillow Talk, Lover Come Back and Send Me No Flowers helped to forge Day as a queer icon, adding layers to her enduring appeal and fan following. Day was also taken up by the likes of film critic Molly Haskell and filmmaker Emma Kate Krogan as a feminist warrior, for her professionally driven working women roles, which showed a more active and aspirational position for women than the more common role of contented wife. There is so much to say about the life and films of Doris Day, and I'm very pleased to be able to invite Eloise Ross back to the microphone to come and help us talk about Doris Day. Eloise. Hey, woo. She's hey. back. I know Mark um, enticed me back I this did. episode, probably too I... soon after my... Um, untimely departure. Demise. <laughs> <laughs> Demise, whatever. It only took two words, Doris Day, and you're like, I'm in. Yeah, yep. basically. Um, oh, what can you say about Doris Day? You're right, Kirsten. So good. Just maybe the most both heartwarming and heartbreaking star that I have ever like had the pleasure of kind of watching. Wow. I don't know. You know, I'm prone to hyperbole. <laughs> but she can um, do both of those things in the space of one movie, right? And just hearing her voice or seeing her face can kind of have this really, like, powerful effect on me. And I think so many others who love musicals or melodramas or, you know, sex comedies. Um, she's just so kind of magnificent and I think transcends the material. This is why there's so much back and forth about who she is and what she represents and how she kind of operates in the cultural context of both America and Hollywood and broader, like, world cinema, right? Well, well, I've got a kind of awkward <clears throat> confession to make in that I haven't seen that many. I mean, I've seen a few now in preparation for this, but she's not one of those stars that I particularly followed or don't hit me, um, particularly cared about. 
Um, I mean, you're not alone there, Mark. Like that's, that's, you're not the only person who kind of says that, who thinks, you know, or she's twee or she's too simple. She's uninteresting because she was just given these, you know, girl next door kind of roles, right? That's the image that I think was created for her by the Hollywood um, machine, essentially. Um, and And, And mine wasn't that necessarily that I thought that she was twee. It was just, she was one of those people that I've just never really chased down. So, I mean, I've seen, had before doing a a bit of a deep dive into her stuff for this. I'd seen growing up with Six to Get Egg Roll used to be on on Sunday afternoon TV all the time. So I saw that probably three or four times, but, you know, I was 10. Um, And, you know, seen Calamity Jane. Um, But that's almost it. Uh, And so actually sitting down for the first time and started re-watching Calamity Jane Holy crap, that film. Um, <laughs> uh, I had forgotten uh, kind of exactly the, the extent of that film. Uh, in my brain, it's a couple of songs and a few little moments. But, I mean, she's, I mean, that film is incredible and she's amazing in that film. So I guess what I'm saying is I came in as a bit of a newbie and I'm bit by bit being converted, I think. Yeah, good. I was going to ask whether you were converted. Not not one hundred percent. I think I saw a couple that I weren't that crazy about, but I mean, she she is a really interesting presence for sure. Yeah, I can just kind of. I think there are so many of her films that I can kind of watch, like several days in a row, the same film. I've done that with the Pajama Game, and I mean, I of course that's partly because of the energy of the film and the songs and Stanley Donan, of course, who we, I think. A few months ago when Stanley Donan passed away, I rewatched The Pajama Game and was kind of thinking fondly of Doris Day being still around and having almost turned 97. Um, and so I've watched that several times in a row. I mean, I think Calamity Jane, of course. Um, what I mean, they're kind of, you know, some of her most maybe famous ones, at least with me. Then there's The Man Who Knew Too Much, which is the Hitchcock film, right? Which I had never seen before this rewatch. And you saw it this week? Oh, I loved it. I mean, you know, like, man discovers that Hitchcock is good. Like, like, shut up, you idiot. Um, But apparently, he's quite the director. um, And, you know, both Jimmy Stewart and and Doris Day are fantastic. I really loved that. I'd seen the, the first version of it, hadn't seen the Doris Day version and that was kind of the the film that really converted me to okay she's actually super interesting yeah because she plays such an interesting role in that film i mean people tend to think and this is because you know she was in musicals and because she was a very popular like um pop singer essentially and sold records aside from her film star persona that her um people think of her as someone you know really kind of, I don't know, essentially bland or just all American or always happy all the time, like this really kind of one-dimensional perspective of who Doris Day is. But she was in some incredible dramatic features where she, you know, in The Man Who Knew Too Much, her pain and grief as a mother Mm. is so heartbreaking. And so, you know, she can kind of just with, of course she does um, use her voice quite intensively in that film, um, not just in singing, but also in, you know, the lines that she speaks, but in just her facial expressions and her gestures, you can see this kind of like pain that her character is experiencing. Um, and that is, I think something that is, you know, it's 
very interesting the way that her kind of star persona has been built, but that's one of the sad things about about the the dominance of that star persona, I think, is that people miss out on that. One of her favourite, one of my um, kind of favourite performances of hers in that realm is Love Me or Leave Me, the Charles Vidor film, where she plays opposite James Cagney and she's, a, you know, essentially um, domestic violence victim. Um, and it's an incredible performance that she gives. And also James Cagney gives this, like, brilliant kind of, like he's not ashamed, I think, of being uh, this brute in the film. Um, and I don't know, have you guys seen that? I didn't, no. It's so worth watching. Kirsten? I haven't seen it, no. But, I mean, this is where, talking about her star persona and how wholesome she was and that, you know, she later became that, um, what was it, America's Oldest Virgin was yeah. part of the, the quip at her. And, but... Tracing, say, her personal life, it's not surprising that she's able to bring such depth of emotion mm-hmm. and varied experience and um, all of that to her on-screen roles. It's sort of, it, it seems really simplistic to to kind of limit her to that um, wholesome American blonde um, girl kind of uh, persona um, when really what she's doing behind the camera and what she's doing um, in her personal life demonstrates a far more... Um, engaged and independent and, you know, she was sort of noted for her work ethic and mm-hmm. all of that kind of stuff. So, yeah, I find her and I'm a little bit like Mark in that um, before we started doing um, this segment for this uh, month's podcast, I hadn't, I was familiar with Doris Day's work. I'd watched a number of her films, but not particularly intensively. Um, but she's someone that I find... I'm unlikely to kind of track down her films um, for her, but I find any time I watch her films really interesting, really engaging. I, I, I'm kind of curious about the fact that she does, does get this thing of, you know, the American virgin, and yet all of her films are so, like, redolent, like like the, the sexuality in those films is so intense. And... Is it purely because she's surrounded by sex and she says, oh, maybe I should be married? Because, I mean, everywhere she goes, people are wanting to have sex with her or she's trying to have sex with them, at least in terms of some of those later films. So it's kind of this really weird paradox that, like, she's such a virgin. Like, all of her, all of her films are just like her being attracted or or being attracted to or by um, other people. It's and, of course, you know... It, it, when you look at that and when it has to be the, you know, polite holding off or yeah. no, I should be married or any of those kind of lines, we're talking about um, what was uh, Hollywood norm, you know, in terms of what they were able to show. And I think it's because they um, move through sort of uh, 60s and into the 70s, you start seeing um, the impact of art cinema on mm. what yeah. Hollywood is making. And so it's sort of what comes next um, in terms of performances where you have much more overt sexuality on screen that kind of led to that. But it's such a... I know, we have to think about the time, right? Like Sheen Rock Hudson have said that they almost didn't take that those roles in Pillow Talk because it was so, like, kind of pushing the boundaries yeah. and it mm. seemed like they were being so risque in terms of dealing with sex. And you watch, you know, if you watch Pillow Talk, you can 
completely tell that the way they're behaving with each other is like so beyond the norms of like so-called like conservative um, ideologies in America at the time. Um, But this idea of her being, you know, that America's oldest virgin is obviously one of the most fascinating things to kind of deconstruct about her. She, it's funny, Mark, you talking about how in every movie people just want to have sex with her. <laughs> like, I'm a virgin. Come at me. Like, in, in her first film, Romance on the High Seas, which is really fascinating to watch because she's so, when you see her later roles, she's so in command of being on screen. She knows where the cameras are. She's confident in herself, even if she's playing someone who's like not very confident. But in Romance on the High Seas, it's her first screen role and she's so good at it, but she's so young and, you know, inexperienced that you can see that she, you can kind of like sense in her physicality that it's her first time on camera and in a film. Um, but in that film, Oscar Levant plays, you know, the classic like <laughs> 1930s character who's been slightly updated for the 1940s, the fate, like asexual best friend who will say things in this really like monotone um, language, like, um, I want you to marry me, but, you know, she'll say no and he'll just move on and be like, oh, well. <laughs> You know, that he's like that kind of best friend character. Um, and he's actually the guy who said quite, you know, very famously, like, I knew Doris Day before she was a virgin, right? Um, I mean, he's, you know, very good at quips as well. Yeah. So, but I, that's, you know, he worked with her in a couple of other films and I really like them on screen together. They're both people who you can see have been kind of like shaped by the Hollywood machine. Did, I mean, I, I am no expert on Doris Day, but... I mean, did culture change, cultural change, both of them, do her in? I mean, is that, because, I mean, she finishes with 60 Get Egg Roll, that's mm. the last film, right? And then yeah. she does the TV show. Which she was um, obliged to do by yeah. her husband. Dead husband. Yeah. Mm. Um, but I don't know that she was sort of, because she, she also left um, from everything I've been able to dig up about the Doris Day show, which is also randomly on Amazon now. So I was able to watch a bit of that. Um, and from everything I could tell, she had quite, she had reamassed her wealth and her power by the time that she mm. stepped away from that show. So I think she could have had quite a successful ongoing um, career. And certainly I haven't seen all of the Doris Day show, but um, from what I understand, it transforms into from her being a rural mother um uh, to being an urban single woman by the end, you know, we're starting cool. to talk about potential of moving into, say, um, uh, the the realm of those kind of sitcoms that come out through the late seventies yeah. and eighties, working women, um, Mary Tyler Moore, all of those kind of areas. So I don't know that cultural change kind of necessarily was the end of her, at least um, not on not on the small screen. True. I mean, she'd done all that, right? Like yeah. shifting into the working woman yeah. kind of kind of role. I always thought, I mean, I haven't watched the Doris Day show, but I always thought that it was because she, um, I mean, perhaps she felt scarred by show business because of what her um, husband had done to her and because of the way that, you know, the public narrative kind of tried to reshape her identity. But also she got much more invested in animal and her animal rights causes. And she also hated flying and that was kind of a key part of the business, right? And so she just kind of withdrew from it for a number of reasons. 
I mean, I'm sure there's more to it, but I think that that also contributed to to her kind of, you know, excluding herself from the public realm. Whereas you had stars like Barbara Stanwyck, who stopped working in films in 64, but then had her show, but was then worked in television more and also flew around. She got, you know, those Lifetime Achievement Awards kinds yeah. of thing. And so there, there, I think you can see why that idea of her being the virgin is crystallized in memory because she didn't you know, try and contribute to to stuff later on. Yeah, we didn't see her move beyond, because even though she moved from the big screen onto the small screen, um, she didn't massively revise that last image of her on screens. Mm. We don't see her age. We don't see her um, work in um, the industry as it changes. I mean, I think I think it's interesting to think about her as a star who did make the choice for whatever reasons were behind that choice, but she chose to withdraw rather than it being in case of she couldn't get more work. And I think that's also what fascinates people um, in terms of her decision not to make another film, her decision not Mm. to keep going with the show. I mean, when you really think about her, and one of the things that I grappled with was watching her work, and as you said, pointed out, Eloise, like she is, she's the working woman. Like she's, she's not like the girl She's the one who's got the job. She's battling with, you know, various, you know, kind of Rock Hudson types um, who are also in, in business or whatever, and or Cary Grant or whoever, and there's always a kind of battle, almost workplace arguments, which is fascinating for her as a persona. So she's both kind of career woman, virgin, and then ultimately sort of gay icon. Um, and, and, it's, and also tomboy. I mean, and tomboy, yeah, Some of yeah. her earliest roles were... Were yeah. in that kind of type, and so it's that, that sense that like she she just was oblivious to it probably, <laughs> but just kind of went about her career, and then it's like a culture appropriated her. Like we wanted her to be things, and we Absolutely. we used her as a, a symbol for a range of interesting groups, I suppose, which is odd, isn't it? Mm. Anyway, I still, I mean, my introduction to Doris Day was um, in the Emma Kate Krogan film Love and Other Catastrophes. Where there is, what happens? Um, there's remember. a PhD student who's working on her thesis as Doris Day as um, Feminist Gloria. <laughs> and that was, I think I'd seen Calamity Jane before that, um, but I hadn't sort of impinged on me who Doris Day was until I was watching that in my teenage years and discovering what academia was through film and discovering discovering who Doris Day was. Yeah. So, mm. yeah. yeah. So good. Well, Doris Day is my... Well, I have several Christmas albums that I bring out every year, and Doris Day is one of them. And this year, she will be listened to with some greater element of sadness oh, than usual. That's beautiful. <laughs> so, farewell, Doris. Um, you served us well. And if you want to leave your memories or add to our discussion, update us on anything you knew about Doris Day, come by our Facebook page at facebook.com slash censorsofcinema. Here at Senses of Cinema, we do our best to bring you the most interesting, provocative writing on cinema from across the globe, highlighting films from the past and the present to bring exciting new talent to your attention and to explore fresh perspectives on films from the past. But it's true that bringing this journal to you each quarter is an expensive proposition, so we've now established a Patreon account to help with meeting the costs of keeping Senses of Cinema running. We have a whole range of goodies for patrons that subscribe to our account. We're offering newsletters, including fresh takes on cinema from our editors, 
and curated dossiers from our back catalogue. And if you're to subscribe at the higher level, you get all of the extras and an ad-free version of this very podcast so you don't have to be interrupted by me every single month. Plus, you'll get an additional bonus segment of the podcast each month out of our gratitude to your commitment to Senses of Cinema. That means that you'll contribute to our ultimate goal at Senses, and that's to be in a position to pay our fantastic writers for all the hard work they all do to keep the journal as terrific as it is. To become a patron of Senses of Cinema, visit sensesofcinema.com, click on our Patreon link, and enjoy the benefits of supporting those who bring the journal to you throughout your film year. Written by Liz Feldman, Dead to Me tells the story of Jen, played by Christina Applegate, a recently widowed mother of two who attends a grief counselling group following the hit-and-run death of her husband. There she meets Judy, played by Linda Cardellini, and the two help each other come to terms with their respective losses. They become best friends really fast, but the truth soon emerges, to us at least, that Judy is the exact same person behind the wheel of the hit-and-run that claimed Jen's husband's life. It's a setup that somehow finds the means to mingle comedy and intense melodramatic drama. Kirsten, how did you find it? I, I love this series. I consumed it in a couple of days. Um, it's intensely funny in an incredibly dark and raw kind of way. And I think probably the thing I found most interesting about it is the, the depiction of grief that we get through this, um, but also mingled with female friendship and just how complex that can be. Eloise, what was your take? I um, don't think this is a perfect show, but kind of like you, Kirsten, I kind of fell in love with it very quickly. And I think I watched it in like two or maybe three evenings. Um, I really, I guess, was also drawn to, you know, these two women who are essentially middle-aged being given a chance to kind of just bounce off each other and I mean the women the actors themselves are in their 40s and so are the characters and so both you know characters and actors are bouncing off each other and making each other's performances stronger and that's what I think you know it's representative of kind of something great that's happening in television right now maybe beyond Netflix but specifically like at least within the Netflix model there are lots of shows that are doing this kind of thing and I did really love it I think it's been described as a traumedy which I have heard that term before but I can't remember in in what regard but you know I mean it very much is because it Mm. it kind of flips tones very quickly Um, and I think that's part of its strength you know some of it, it reminded me because there is a cliffhanger at the end of each episode but there's also, I find, lots of twists within each episode and that's fairly unusual. And I was thinking about, because a couple of weeks ago with the first year students, we were talking about television and we watched Desperate Housewives and we kind of had these really interesting conversations about how at each point where an ad break would be, they had to make like these miniature cliffhangers um, so that you would come back after the ad break and that that kind of thing has disappeared from television now because it's all streaming and it's all bingey. But I think this show uses them. Like it kind of brings back that script writing model, right? Yeah. I mean, I I, like the idea of it being a traumedy. That makes a lot of sense to me because I will say I haven't got to the end, so I don't know whether, you know, the entire city erupts into flames, but um, it doesn't, does it? 
No. <laughs> you told us not to Don't spoil it for spoil you. Me. Um, but I mean, that was one of the things I started to grapple with. Like, I thought that it was going to be a bit of a kind of wackadoo comedy because it's Christina Applegate, and I'm so friggin' ancient. I remember when she was like a teenager, you know, on Married with Children, and she was a, kind of the young, hot, like seventeen-year-old, and now she's the the older lady, bless her. Um, but so. Boy, that made me feel awesome. Oh, look. <laughs> look how old Christina Applegate's looking. I'm doomed. Um, but it it struck me that I kept thinking it was going to be really funny. And then it was just like a lot of people crying and everybody's dead and everybody's sad. I'm thinking, oh, this, this is not hitting the comedy. But then, as you say, you start to see this really super, super dark comedy start to emerge out of it that is you know, like legitimately hilarious. So that was my first experience with trying to grapple with the, the show itself. And then, as you say, Eloise, you start to settle into this. It's got a rhythm and it is it is totally bingeable. I literally did stop myself from... Because I did, I think, the first five episodes in one go. Went back and did another couple and thought, I, like, I have to stop because I actually, you know, need to shower. So, you know, it's good to be clean. So I turned the TV off. Um, but... It's so consumable because mm. it is so kind of cliffhangery, And as you say, you don't get halfway through an episode and think, oh, well, you know, I'll go and make a cup of coffee. Like, oh, well, I'll get to the end of this one. Cliffhanger, now I'm back for the next. But with the cliffhangers as well, it's not... I I went back a while ago and rewatched um Gossip Girl, which was something I'd kind of vaguely touched base when it was actually on TV. And what I found watching it on a streaming service was just how exhausting the cliffhangers in that show became when yep. you could immediately watch the next episode. Yep. Um, but the I don't think that the, those shows are bingeable no. in the same way that today's Whereas shows are. What it, what Dead to Me does is you have the cliffhangers, you have these moments of suspense, and they keep the suspense going about who knows what um, for a really long time. Um, but I think the way that they resolve those cliffhangers, are it's not that sort of complete relief what I found is they would set up the cliffhanger where oh no is someone going to find out or what's going to happen next and then it wouldn't necessarily be what I expected it would be a kind of side turn where the tension's not resolved but you're now thinking Focus about something, something else, else. Yeah. Um, and just picking up on what you were saying before Eloise um, what I think it didn't hit me until now but when you were talking about these you know middle aged women sort of playing off even though this this show is clearly about grief, about the challenge of living both women have lost, um, and that's very much at the forefront of what the discussions and um, plot of this show is on, but um, there's very much a grieving of their lives not being what they expected. Mm. Um, you know, their 40s haven't arrived in the way that they expected them to arrive. They're not all the things they thought they would have achieved or that they were meant to achieve in life. It's not how it's played out. And so these women are grieving an obvious loss, but also this kind of loss of expectation and sense of self That's that so I think true. is really fascinating. And also there's kind of multiple levels of grief. It's not just like I loved somebody and they died. There's also a sense of, you know, I've lost myself as a mother, I've lost myself as a wife now, as various kind of um, kind of events start to unfold. There is, I think, my favourite sequence in that 
show, as far as I have seen, involves her son um, and uh, a, a sort of detective, um, which is just incredible. And, and it is, it's a shocking sequence, I thought it was anyway, but it's actually about her recognising that she's lost it as a mother. Like she's not, all of the things that she counted on have gone and she has to somehow reassert herself in a new space that she that is unfamiliar to her. And the flip side being the, the Linda Cardellini character, Judy, who is kind of almost preemptively grieving the loss of her friendship um, with Jen, which I find really touching and really sad. I was um, doing some, like, Googling reviews of the show um, and kind of looking, and I read a few interviews with the creator and the two stars, but I found a review of the show in The Times of Israel, <laughs> which is a newspaper actually published in Israel, and it was in praise of this show and said that, well, the, it has nothing explicitly Jewish. There's one scene that's a, like a rabbi, a Jewish funeral, um, I think. Uh, anyway, so there's one scene, but the show itself is not Jewish, but it has, this author was saying, a sensitive handling of parenting teens, um, a sensitive handling of things like breast cancer and the grief of infertility and stuff, and all of these um, kind of elements it explores that seem very specific and familiar to this idea of being a Jewish mother or a Jewish woman or something. And I yeah. found that a really fascinating yeah. kind of approach. You know, when we think about representations of Judaism in pop culture, it's always in this kind of very, um, I feel like mostly very sensitive and very kind of um, understandable. Like, you know, we, people come to Judaism with a great sense of, I think, um, understanding or openness mm. and to see like the flip side of that. And, you know, this idea of a Jewish kind of faith paper coming to a show in that way as well yeah. seemed very eye opening to me. Yeah. Yeah. Is, is it too soapy? <laughs> I do think it might by like episode eight. I think I was getting, I wasn't really sure where it was going and I thought, how is it going to get itself out of, you know, how is it going to dig itself out of this hole? Again, it just keeps getting bigger and bigger. I did love the ending of the season. I loved it so much and I'm so excited for season two. And when I was doing this research, it hasn't been renewed yet. And I was like, no, can, some, can Netflix just renew it already? I mean, I'm sure it will come back. Yeah, but. I believe that Netflix sort of has a, like they wait a month after dropping it onto okay. their platform right. before they will comment. Right. Well, um, I'm glad I watched all of it then to give it an extra number. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, I mean, thinking about that, I've, I've read a couple of um, – fan theories and comments about what comes next and one from the creator going, maybe you don't know what you think you know about the ending. <laughs> so no spoilers. But yeah, I'm really fascinated to see what will happen with the second season. And that's where I think the the question around, is it too soapy, might be answered. Is There's a way that it could go that where it turns into a massive kind of soap. But at the moment, what I like is that tension of you think it's going to be super, super soapy and then it just holds back. Right. Yeah, I um, think it is very aware of how soapy it is. And I can see in some of its, I mean, it has some more obvious and some like, you know, slightly kind of um, coded references to other, you know, pop culture phenomenons or, you know, imagery, um, songs, that kind of thing, where it um, connects to what we think about maybe movies and TV. Yep. 
and can either kind of, it will either take that a bit further or, you know, subvert it somehow. So I think that it is much more clever than it might seem on the surface in some, in some ways. And I'm really excited. Yeah. All right. Well, Dead to Me, it's on Netflix at the moment. Uh, If you want to share your thoughts on Dead to Me, don't spoil the ending for me yet. Um, uh, by all means, come to our Facebook page uh, on facebook.com slash cinema and leave a comment there on our episode thread. Each month, your hosts here at Sense of Cinema podcast share with you a highlight from the current month of Screen Gems. Whether it's a film, television show or some other kind of screen media that has caught our attention, we share with you material that has resonated with us. May has been a big month for the screen, with Cannes Film Festival kicking off its usual feast of films that will flow slowly out to all of us sitting in other parts of the world over the coming year, Um, and cinemas and streaming services competing for our attention. Mark, what has caught your attention this month? Well, I'm glad that you mentioned Cannes, because I'm going to talk about something really close to Cannes, St Kilda. Um, (laughs) Uh, so St Kilda, for international uh, listeners, is a, just a suburb in Melbourne. We do have a film festival every year, uh, and it is a short film festival. Um, so the St Kilda Film Festival, I think, gets underway in about three weeks' time uh, in the middle of June. I think it opens at the Palais. It's around about a week full of uh, just short films all day, every day, um, from all around uh, all around the world, from all over the place, but particularly, happily, um, a bunch that are from Australia, which is fantastic. Uh, so it is a really good opportunity. You know, we have plenty of film festivals that are focused on feature lengths or, you know, in particular interest groups. Um, you know, the short film is a really specific mode of filmmaking and, you know, it can be a really um, brilliant and affecting um uh, format. So this whole festival is dedicated to the short film, uh, and I know that I have a couple of students who've got their film. Not that I'm promoting my own people, but uh, certainly there's a, a couple of films in uh, the festival this year uh, coming from uh, Swinburne University, where we where we tape this podcast and where both Eloise and I work, um, and they've got their their films into St Kilda. So. Uh, if you happen to be international and flying to Melbourne in June, when the weather is the worst it ever is, come over and have a look at the St Kilda Film Festival because it's a really, really fascinating festival uh, highlighting some really extraordinary short films from around the world. And um, I think uh, if you're in the US, I think sometimes some of these films make it to the... Um what is it, the Palm, Palm, yeah, Palm Springs, Palm Springs yes. Film Festival? Yes, they do. So if yeah. you can't, can't make it to Melbourne in the middle of winter, maybe you can make it to, to That's Palm right. Springs. That's just, right. Just look out for, for, the, for the Melbourne content. Um, there's one particular documentary that I'll give a quick shout-out to called The Flow Effect, um, which was, in fact, um, done by one of my students. Uh, it's a documentary about a, a diver, and it is extraordinarily beautiful um so chase that one down if you happen to come across it eloise what's your recommendation for this month Mm, me i (laughs) (laughs) your recommendation is you (laughs) i would like to recommend myself (laughs) i I, I can can recommend eloise as well i am essential to screen culture (laughs) i am in fact a gem (laughs) um so i read an article 
and I don't think it has a publication, like a home publication. I, I read it on longreads.com, first time I've ever been taken to that website. But anyway, I wonder if it's like a medium type thing where people can publish. Does anyone know? This is really not relevant <laughs> um, to my recommendation, but it was on Longreads. So Soraya Roberts has written this piece on, um, called the, on the erotic thriller's Little Death. Um, and I love the title because it's about, you know, the little death is right, like the reference to the psychoanalytic term for a male orgasm. Um, and it, this is about the erotic thriller not existing anymore, essentially. So she writes about, um, I mean, she kind of draws on some Linda Williams theory, that ac academic theory about the, um, the erotic thriller, who said that they were noirish stories of sexual intrigue. But um, Soraya Roberts kind of suggests that, um, what was so great about the erotic thriller is that there were often, you know, the, these plots were kind of grand or they could kind of come from nowhere. They were maybe soapy or they were well thought through. It didn't really matter. But the, essentially what was great is that there was a lot of sex in them. And there was a lot of like female freedom um, and, and women being open about their um, sexuality and sexual desire and everything. And that this very specific period in time between like 1980 and 1995 meant that there was, um, was when there was lots of erotic thrillers. And she even does go to 2003 with Jane Campion's In the Cut as like the last kind of like burst of the, the proper erotic thriller in America to say, like obviously coming out of Europe, um, there's a, you know, sort of a lot more maybe salacious kind of like material. The recent um, Australian film, the, th the Second, is absolutely an erotic th thriller, I would say. Yeah, amazing. Um, what about Adore, that one by the beach? <laughs> Mark rolls his eyes. Anyway, I haven't seen it, so I don't know. But um, she, I erotic, think... Erotic? <laughs> sleepy? Um, Soraya Roberts says that showgirls killed the genre, um, which I don't know if that's entirely true, but I'm not a erotic thriller expert. So who's to say, um, however, I feel like I should move on from telling you everything that she wrote cause you can read it yourself. But essentially I think this is kind of a roundabout review of the new TV show. What if starring Renee Zellweger that I think I saw an image for on Netflix, but yeah. I haven't watched. First few episodes directed by Philip Noyce. Oh, oh, really? Yes, which I think wow. is not at all a recommendation to go and see it. Like, oh. if you want to preserve your <laughs> fond memories of his work, oh. steer clear. Right. It's, really? Yeah. It's, oh, um, the anti-recommendation. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I, mean, I haven't watched much of it. I sort of started flicking around on it on Netflix. Yeah. But, um, Look, I don't know if I will. I mean, essentially, I think Soraya Roberts is saying that this is the erotic thriller for today, which is to say that it's not an erotic thriller at all, but it's in fact something that pretends to be, but is just playing it safe in terms of like what sex can be shown on screen because of the way things have changed. Interestingly, I don't know if you guys listen to the podcast still processing, but they were kind of talking around the same thing a few episodes ago, like how, you know, sex used to be something that was a lot more accepted in terms of like, I guess, mm, audacious screen mm. representation. Is that the right word for yeah, it? I don't yeah. know. And now there's too much timidity around it yeah. for, for a whole number of reasons that I think people can probably assess well, on this, their own. This but. is something I'm fascinated about in terms of Netflix and the, the kind of Netflix effect on screen production, which is HBO, you know, we talked about Game of Thrones earlier. Mm. You want to talk about explicit, mm. you know, violence, sex, all of the rest of it that was on there. Um, but you can't really see 
that level of content appearing on Netflix. Netflix, even though it is a streaming service and you have a lot of different themes on there, it still hits its um, target at a little bit more modest. It's a, it, it assumes that anyone could be watching to a certain extent. And this is where the squeamishness of Hollywood and the American studio system around sex really comes through, is that you don't see. Yeah, I have been trying to think, like, is Netflix... Uh, you know, initially I think Netflix was great because it, you know, gave... It, there was not, not the traditional kind of, like, production structures, right? So it could produce things that would not be seen on typical broadcast television. So maybe it was something as fantastic for, you know content as HBO, but I don't think it is at all. I think that, you know, thank goodness it exists, but it's not, not the same. Yeah. I think, I mean, ultimately I think Netflix is still very much part of the same kind of studio models that we've seen. They did some things differently, but they're doing a lot of the things the same. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. That said. (laughs) Oh, if you love the erotic thriller, you should read this piece by Soraya Roberts. Brilliant. And Kirsten? I'm actually going to, after having just trashed Netflix a little bit, um, (laughs) recommend something that's on there. What if? I believe Philip (laughs) Noyce does the first couple of episodes. No, my recommendation is for See You Yesterday, which is a sci-fi time travel film by first-time feature director Stefan Bristol. Um, I believe this was a short film that um, Bristol had at NYU um, under the tutelage of Spike Lee that got then developed with his co-writer Frederica Bailey into feature script, which was then produced by Spike Lee's um, production company, 40 Acres and a Mule. Um, This is a great uh, film. Um, It plays with the time travel genre. There's a great cameo right at the beginning of the film. Um, Michael J. Fox appears and says, great Scott, it's wonderful. (laughs) Um, it, It takes up the premise of, uh, a couple of uh, teenage African-American kids um, uh, who live in Brooklyn, uh, they invent a time machine. And at first it can travel back one day and they eventually boost it up to travel back a little bit longer. Um, and it's sort of this great breakthrough and it starts off in quite a triumphant and joyful kind of sci-fi romp um, of, you know, they're going to get into all these colleges and the rest of it. And then the film, in quite a powerful way, comes right up against Black Lives Matters. Right. And so telling the story of what would it be like if a couple of black um, teens invented a time machine in today's America, um, what would they be using it for? And this is sort of a question that um, Michael J. Fox's character kind of sets them right at the start is, what what would you do with it? You're missing the point. If you had time travel, what would you do, use it for? Um, and this comes right up against um, one of the brothers of one of the kids is uh, shot by police And so the rest of the film becomes a race of trying to fix that problem. And it really sets this fascinating question of what is the use of time travel? Um, What is the use of changing history if you can't also change society? Are you ever actually going to have anything that has a meaningful and lasting uh, difference? And so it's quite a tragic and uncertain end to this film. You don't get a happy resolution of every question. Um, it's up to the uh, viewer to kind of interpret what they think the final outcome will be. And it could be something really joyful. It could be less so, but it, it sort of leaves you with a lot of questions about what would it actually be like to, um, if you had that power, is it enough? Is time travel enough to solve the current issues around um, violence against African-Americans 
um, that in contemporary US. That so interesting. I think you have sold me. I will need to chase that down. I've got to finish Dead to Me first. Oh, yes, you but do. <laughs> I do. I've only got a couple of episodes to go. <laughs> and then I'm getting onto that because that sounds amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Fantastic. Well, thanks for joining us this month on the Senses of Cinema podcast. And thanks to Kirsten, of course, and our wonderful surprise third chair <laughs> who appeared mid-show, uh, Eloise Ross. Thanks Thank- for having me back, Mark. Yes. We're glad to have you back, of course. Next time we'll we'll try and wait for the next... Oh, don't no, don't no, say no, not, that. Not the next tragedy, but the next kind of opportunity <laughs> to get you back in. I'm not saying let's kill all the old Hollywood Which stars. Which next of, Austra- yeah. of Eloise's okay. favourite people can <laughs> <Yes>. die? <laughs> <laughs> the next opportunity to get you to come in um, and spend some time with us. Um, thanks also to our technical producer, the wonderful and brilliant Troy Mori, who proudly sits on the rather wonky decibel throne in our hearts. Uh, thanks also to Swinburne University for the use of their recording studio here in beautiful Hawthorne, Melbourne, although it's June, so it's kind of crap. Um, I'm Mark Freeman, and thanks again for listening to the Senses of Cinema podcast, and we will speak with you again next month.